Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. On this week's edition, I'm very pleased to say that we're joined by actor Bill Patterson and producer Rebecca O'Brien to talk about Friendship's Death, a 1987 film by Peter Wallen in which Tilda Swinton is the woman who fell to earth, an extraterrestrial named Friendship who, on a peace mission, misses her intended destination and winds up in Jordan in 1970 where she meets Bill Patterson's war correspondent. Restored by the BFI National Archive, Friendship's Death is available on BFI Blu-ray and DVD for the first time, as well as on BFI Player, iTunes and Amazon Prime. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Patterson and Rebecca O'Brien. So, Rebecca and Bill, thanks ever so much for coming on the Kermit on Film podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you. Let's begin by, um, Rebecca, I'm going to ask you for a bit of history. Um, Tell me about the film, which is alternatively known as Friendship's Death and Woman Who Fell to Earth, which titles should we be talking about it with? Oh, Friendship's Death. Who called it Woman Who Fell to Earth? I've never heard of it, heard of that. No, good, fine. Friendship's <laughs> Death in that case it is. So tell us how Friendship's Death came about. Uh, well, from my side, um, Peter Wallen, well, he wrote a short story which appeared in Emma Tennant's magazine, which was called Bananas. That was a literary magazine which sort of printed all sorts of stuff and it was so it started life as a short story that he had written and um I don't know I mean I uh, I'd worked with Peter and Laura Mulvey who they worked as a team um prior to this uh extraordinary event and I actually worked with them on a little film called Crystal Gazing as a sort of production stroke location manager back in 19... 19- 81. And anyway, um, so I knew Peter already. I was friends with them. And Peter said somebody had asked him to make a film of a short story that he'd done. And that was Friendship's Death. And I read it and I thought this would be fantastic. And and he'd sent it to Colin McCabe, who was running the BFI at the time, the BFI production board. Um, and and he liked it, too. And And basically... That was that. It was that simple to get a film made in the late 80s. It was that if it, so if it was obscure enough and tantalised the BFI's powers that be, basically gave us the money. It wasn't very much money. I think it was, I think the budget was about 180,000, if I remember. And it all came from the BFI. And that was it. And Peter said, you, you've made films. You've worked on films, Rebecca. You could produce it. So, of course... 
in my first opportunity to produce produce I said absolutely yes it was a golden opportunity for me and um and it was just a great opportunity to start playing properly and Peter was a great person to play with really in that respect yeah now, obviously, you've had a stellar career since then, Rebecca. <laughs> so it was a very, very good starting point. Um, did you? You said it was easy to get something financed if it was sort of, you know, strange or, or, or quirky enough. Is it possible? I'm going to throw this to you before I throw this to Bill. Tell us what the story of Friendships End is. Describe um, okay, the so, story for me. Uh, there's this British journalist who's holed up in um, a hotel in Amman, Jordan, in uh, during the weeks of Black September um, in 1970. And he, the journalist is British journalist and he's wandering the streets, uh, he's, he's covering the streets and he's rushing to get back to his quarantine, you know, there's a curfew on. And he bumps into this, he meets this uh, Western woman. Yeah. It's very weird that the West, Western woman should be wandering the streets of Amman sort of late evening. And it transpires that she has nowhere to go. And so he sort of takes her under his wing and um, takes her to the authorities. The authorities don't know who she is. They say to the journalist, uh, Sullivan, you know, she can stay in your hotel. You keep an eye on her. And so she moves into Sullivan's hotel. The two of them have a series of conversations over during the curfew times every evening and she gradually explains who she is to the journalist and you begin to believe that what she's saying is that she has actually arrived from another planet over the course of the film you believe her she gradually assimilates the, the world that she's landed she's landed in the wrong place Aman wasn't where she meant to be she was meant to arrive at MIT in Massachusetts and so she was prepared for that wrong place so she makes the best of it and gradually you realize that she's identifying with the Palestinian cause and so she basically through a course of through a series of conversations with the journalist you believe that she's not of this world and and so does the journalist. And that's quite a tall order to make, you know, a cynical British journalist in the guise yeah. of Bill Patterson um, believe. And, uh, and you do. And that's why I love the film, because you actually come away thinking that Tilda Swinton is an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, I want... I want to give you a round of applause for that synopsis. That was, I think that was, that was the best and most coherent. Well done. So, Bill, pick it up from there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that synopsis, <laughs> the, the brevity and, and, uh, and compactness of it, because I couldn't say more. Uh, it, um, it, the, these conversations go on. There is an opening that is slightly, you, you, it does set you in the, in the in the um, the world of Amman and Jordan, the danger of the time, and and then you retire pretty much to the safety or comparative safety of his hotel room. Uh, there, there's there's not even any there's no that I can recall. Rebecca, right. I don't think there's a frisson of romance or anything happens or or uh, sexual tension of any sort. It's it's just that he's confronted with this extraordinary creature who changes. In every conversation, in looks, 
So she is no longer, she, uh, from one uh, section of conversation, perhaps lasting 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, she then uh, comes back again, they regroup, and, and she looks entirely different in a very subtle but quite magical way, which I think is what Tilda thrived on. I think that's what really made her jump at it, the, the thought of this mm-hmm. alien, almost, you know, kind of David Bowie, uh, metamorphosing that, that in some ways Tilda Swinton has continued to do for the rest of her career. And so it was this mini masterclass of, of Tilda uh, doing that. And I literally just fed the questions and we discussed philosophy. And I did believe her. I mean, I, you know, I still think about friendship's death as, as yeah. being about meeting <laughs> an alien uh, at Twickenham Studios for a couple of, you know, two and a half weeks or whatever it is. I had the pleasure when uh, Tilda got the BFI Fellowship of doing an onstage with her, showing clips from throughout her career, which of course ended up with the, the video that she made with David Bowie, in which the, the whole film is playing on the fact that they actually look like two sides of the same person yeah. and there's so much of that aesthetic. Yeah. It is interesting now in the knowledge of all that that happened, now going back to look at Friendship's Death, because the casting of Tilda as a result of everything that's happened since now seems even more astute than it must have done back in the 80s. She was always going to be the part, she was always going to play the part because Peter had spotted her. I think he knew of her and it was, I think, Susie Figgis was involved, actually. But anyway, he knew of her and he'd met her through Derek Jarman, I think. And uh, and he said there's this incredibly bright young woman who seems to be... Originally, in the short story, Friendship was a man. And uh, he decided to change... I mean, also very prescient because we shot this in 86, I think. And um, there wasn't so much pressure to turn all the men's parts into women's and all the rest of it. And anyway, so Tilda was absolutely, there was no other, there was no question that we would have Tilda and there was no question that we would have Bill as well. And it was just simply a matter of, yeah, there was, you were never anything other than the journalist. That that surprises me, but but there is a funny and strange connection there. I have never uh, spoken to about Rebecca, is that Derek Jarman was my neighbour in Phoenix House. Oh, yeah. In this I, little crazy block yeah. of flats opposite, opposite St. Martin's School of Art. And uh, I was at number 17 and Derek was at 19. So I, the, through the early part of the 80s until uh, maybe about 84, 85. So just before we, we shot this, I would very often, uh, there was always this troop of exotic creatures trekking up and down outside my front door, heading for Derek's, uh, of male and female. And, and Tilda, of course, was one of them. And, um, and I got to sort of say hello to her and the Scottish connection of her family roots in Scotland. And uh, so it, I, th- there is a little bit of a link there that probably nobody would ever have thought about in this one-roomed block of flat. It's funny, isn't it? It's- there's, it's funny this sort of serendipity because I share a, I share a similar Scottish background to Tilda, posh Scot, <laughs> borders, yeah. um, and and also the Derek German thing because I did an interview, I did a documentary about a guy called Andy the Furniture Maker who made Derek Derek mm-hmm. had discovered him. 
Andy had been a rent boy in Soho and Derek had sort of discovered him and sort of smartened him up and got him to make his bed, build his bed. And then he went on to build all sorts of other bits of furniture yeah. around, amongst sort of cultural people around. So we, and that was in Phoenix House. So there's, there's, there's weird connections going it's, on. I think she's an alien. It's interesting how much <laughs> Derek Jarman ends up being the sort of cement between so many different parts of the industry. I mean, I was recently at, um, at his place in Dungeness, which obviously has all the, you know, the, the paintings and the, some of the furniture that you're talking about. And I had first, I had interviewed Derek just shortly before his death. Um, but I had first been introduced to his work because he was the set designer on Ken Russell's The Devils, which is one of my favorite Oh my films. God. And it is it's just unbelievable, you know, making Ludan look like, a, like Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, so taking a 17th century setting and make it look futuristic. But it's extraordinary how many projects you are literally one handshake away from Derek Jarman being connecting glue. You know, while I was there in a man, I never imagined I'd remember everything with such clarity. Everything's still completely vivid. The sound of mortars, the mimeograph machine and the PLO post where I first met friendship, even the taste of the tea. Hijack's planes blown up on a desert airstrip. That's the image we all remember. Pure spectacle. Millions of dollars going up in smoke. Pure waste. Pure destruction. Why is it happening? It's incomprehensible. It's an image with all the meaning drained out of it. Completely opaque. Like a curtain between us and history. Were you briefed? And why were you sent here? So now, Bill, I take it. Have you gone back and watched the film uh, again recently? Not, not just like not like last week, but a year or so ago. I did because we we did. Uh, uh, Rebecca, remember we did the uh, the Whitechapel. Gallery um, uh, screening. Well, that was more than a year ago now. Time goes so slowly. In fact, of course, it's only so I watched it again then. In fact, it, I, because of the difficulty of getting a hold of it, the only thing I had of it was an old VHS, <laughs> which uh, has gone the way of the Betamax. Yes. And the, for our younger listeners, I'd like to say VHS was a way of putting films on tape that then would get chewed up by a VHS recorder, and Betamax was always better. Other tape, yes, other tape <laughs> also, formats are also available. <laughs> Yeah, so they get chewed up and turned kind of yellow and green when people were watching them. So I would long to, to get a lovely fresh <laughs> DVD. <laughs> but how was it? I mean, even, even a year ago on that format, how was it seeing it again? Was it the film that you remembered? How did you think it stood up? What surprised you about it? Well, I think it, it you know, you should not really probably revisit anything you've done too often or, or at all. <laughs> but I am, um, certainly in my case, but <laughs> the... the um, I, I was really pleasantly surprised at the depth of the discussion, almost the intellectual depth that that uh, that takes place in the film, and the fact that we that it it was clear and and kind of beautifully argued. So I was more concerned about uh, I was more excited about that than the than the you know the the fact that 
I looked 30 or 40 years younger. And, and um, so I, I, I was pleasantly surprised at seeing it again. I was dreading it, thinking I might be lost in this obscure exercise. And, and it's actually very gripping. One of the things that surprised me the most is how handsome it looks. I mean, it's actually a very, very well shot film. Rebecca was saying that you're talking about a comparatively tiny amount of money, but actually it looks really good. Yeah, we had top people on it. We had, I had just worked, I just worked with a Polish cameraman called Witold Stock uh, on a, on a uh, on a series for Channel Four, and I thought he was absolutely brilliant and underused. And then also, I worked. I I I met Gemma Jackson, the design who went on to do great things as a designer. And um, and then Gemma, I think, recommended Kathy Cook, who was the costume designer. And so suddenly, we had this top group of amazing people and the makeup artist makeup and hair was morag ross who's all of these people have gone on to have completely stellar careers and what we did in the first before we shot it in twickenham we shot it in a period of two two and a half weeks but before we did that we rehearsed it we we took a, a rehearsal room at rada or wherever it was in in uh, in town and we drew out everywhere on the floor just a bit, a bit like um, Lars von Trier in, in his film. But we drew out the, 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 the yes, exactly. We drew out the, the, the plan for the, the hotel rooms and we rehearsed the whole thing very thoroughly. And I think Vitold came and worked out every shot before we went into the studio. And he decided to light everything differently so that, so that this, this otherwise could have been seen as a rather boring um, long dialogue between two characters but because he makes every the two bed the two hotel rooms completely different he changes the light all the time he has different angles different shots and the wonderful uh, camera operator uh rodrigo um the, between them i think it's rodrigo gutierrez anyway between them they we uh, we we worked, and Larry Prince was the gaffer, and we worked out every shot before we did it. And so it meant that the actors, I reckon, could concentrate on the very difficult words that they were going to have to say. I mean, it, the, 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 the language is quite complex, and, um, but it was well rehearsed. And also we had two, we had with Gemma and with Vitor, we had two, a designer and a cameraman who really wanted to play and to enjoy the freedom of doing their own thing because Peter was mostly interested in the words because he was the writer as well. So it meant that the designer and the, and the cinematographer could actually do their best work. And, and within that limited budget, we were able to, to, to really have fun and and play with the the toys that we had. You know, Rebecca, I'd forgotten that we had rehearsed at that length, and it's when you bring it back, I do it. I think it was better, uh, but I'd forgotten because that's what made me intrigued. It's when I saw it again a year or so ago that I realised how did we uh, cope with that dialogue uh, when you spend your time in one's advanced years, kind of desperately you know, pinning bits of paper <laughs> to the back of the, the set and, and on your, your cufflinks to, 
to try and get its X-ray. Um, we were doing these lengthy um, screeds of, of, of often philosophical thought, and it stands to reason that we rehearsed it like we were going to open it at the Cottesloe or at the, the, the Royal Exactly, Court. exactly. And there's, that, yeah. there's one shot where, where he... Uh, um, friendship talks about her trip to Jerash, the ruins yeah. at Jerash, and it's a wonderful camera movement as she slides down the wall, and the camera slides down with her, and then it opens up, and it's 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 very very carefully choreographed, and I think she's almost learnt the the lines in in tune with the camera, and and that's yeah. what works so well. It's it, it's yeah. it's a sort of symphony in camera movement. And- you're right about the, the, the makeup part of it, of Morag Ross, who, was, as you say, went on to great things. Um, it, there was lengthy periods while uh, Tilda would change from these moods instead of just a quick slap uh, on a little comb of the hair. It, there were major changes and they took quite a long time. And I was left alone. There was nobody else out there, nobody to play with, really, you know. Like, and you couldn't have theatrical antidotes in the corner with the other actors because they were not. And everybody was busy setting up or whatever. So I read, uh, I read, uh, there was a, a book on the set. It was Truman Capote's uh, In Cold Blood. And I read the entire book through the, uh, through the, in the waiting. In fact, one of the shots, I think there is a shot of me holding it. I still have that copy. Um, it was quite a nice old 50s uh, uh, paperback version. So I had this incredible calm and peace to just be left alone on, on the set. And then a, a new vision would appear in the shape of Tilda with either sort of pigtails down here or hair strong back or a, or a cap on or a different colouring, different... Uh, it was... Uh, it, that part of it was unlike anything that I've ever, ever done before and certainly even since. Bill, let me ask you a question that you're never supposed to ask an actor, which is, I mean, you've said that the, obviously there's a lot of dialogue and we know that the film happens within a very particular historical setting in the middle of a conflict, which, you know, it is still in the headlines today. What do you think the film is about? Uh, I, I think it, to me it was like, um, uh, I, I think it is about the politics. There's no question it was about the politics of of. Uh, what and, and uh, the, of, a, of an intractable problem that is still damn nearly thirty-three years later, identical but more so um, of 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 how human beings behave to each other and how they how they, they face conflict, and this strange creature came to 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 put forward a sort of. Uh, a kind of benevolent solution. She was a benevolent visitor, I think, wasn't she? Largely, um, uh, friendship. And one never yeah. felt any terrible threat, and even her crystals that she appears. So, you know, to me, it was like a meditation on goodness about about how human beings should behave with one another in in the midst of a conflict that was about how how when we don't do it right, we cause such pain and anguish to to one another. So. That, that, that's about as far as I go. I know that Peter was a deep academic, as a, a, a much more than a director. So um, I, I think he would have endless levels to play with. 
Can you say something about that, um, Rebecca, in terms of, you know, an academic, a film theorist actually making movies? It sounds like potentially a nightmare scenario. How easy was he to work with? Oh, well, actually, he was very easy to work with because, and, and, and in fact, for the rest of us, as, as it were, more filmmaker type filmmakers, it made life much easier because um, he was really concentrating on the words and he wanted very specifically to get his various toys into the film. And uh, he was he was concentrating very much on how things were said and what was said, which meant that unusually with a director who command the image and commands the sound and everything, it, unusually they all the people that I, that I was able to bring to the table were able to do their their thing and 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 I think they really liked working with Peter. Vitold complained once or twice that he asked him how the sh how the shot looked uh, at, at the end of the shot, and of course Peter had his had his eyes closed throughout the whole thing because he was listening very intently, so he had no idea <laughs> what the shot was, and we didn't have video replay at that time. So, um, but but Peter also had a great sense of fun. He had unlike what you'd expect an academic. He he had he liked to have a laugh and he liked to have fun with the uh, um, with all the, the the things that friendship brought to the table. He liked and he really liked. I think the other thing was he was so delighted to have collaborators. As an academic, you often don't have collaborators so much as, you know, you, and mm. I think you like the idea of having these people who were like Morag would suddenly turn up with Tilda looking completely different. And he, he would just love the fact that he didn't, it, that, that, that just happened. Um, and so actually, um, I think it was a pleasure to work with Peter and it, it was a pleasure because he was very engaged with what the other people on the team were bringing. And so that was what made it so much fun for us too. Bill, do you remember it being fun? I do. I was just going to add the anecdote of Rebecca that there was one of our lengthy scenes, which they're all long conversations, but long take. And I noticed, and so did Tilda, our eyelids crossed at one point, that, that Peter was sitting sort of in a corner looking down at Julia like this all the way through, the eyes closed thing. And I, I think both of us, I said, when the take ended, I said to Tilda, do you think, do you think he saw any of that? You know, Because it was long before video assist or people sit in video village and watch everything that's going on all the time now. But uh, and we, we, we mentioned it to him gently, not, not saying, how dare you not look at this? <laughs> but he said, yeah, I, he said, I, I wasn't much as listening because I know Vitor will have the picture. I know that it's, um, I'm, I'm, it was a kind of ease of confidence that they'll be getting all that. All these technical people will be getting it. I want to know if the argument works, and uh, and I'm listening to it for that. So that you know that was that was kind of it's quite a nice way to work. Then come somebody coming rushing around, and you know it, it, there was not never a moment of difficulty working with Peter. Yes, and it's it's one of those things where you you genuinely feel that you have made the film with your colleagues it's it, it was real teamwork and I think that's so so often not the case because there's one main person who's sort of bellowing around um obviously not the case with some of my colleagues but 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 
it was, it really felt, you felt sort of, you'd, you'd born fruit, you'd, you'd been fruitful in creating this because everybody was working to their best endeavours, you know. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, how different is that? I mean, Bill, from an actor's point of view, nowadays, you know, you talked about Video Village. I've heard so many actors say that, that you don't see the director because they're buried behind a bank of monitors and they're dealing with everything by remote control. It sounds to me like if you can actually see the director and you can see that he's listening, that may be slightly more intimate than somebody being off behind a bank of monitors. Absolutely. I mean, Rebecca, you're working. I don't know how Ken works uh, um, with a kid. I, I doubt it. I was just <laughs> going to say I wouldn't have thought he was a video village kind of guy, you know. But uh, And I think we're, we're maybe through the worst of that now. There's much more, uh, at least in a in middle-range filmmaking, I think, on a giant blockbusters, I'm sure that you're watching so much. But uh, I think there's a tendency to get out from under that uh, and, and join people on the close-up to the actors' faces. And, and technically, you can hold a a machine like this now in front of you and still be there. So, uh, but, but we were free of all that. I mean, but the whole story, of course, of Friendship's death would not have operated in the, in the present climate of, of uh, uh, internet and, yeah. and accessibility to the planet. Sullivan was operating in a telephone only um, 1970s uh, landline television a telephone in a in a battered hotel you know these that, that world would have changed beyond recognition and one of the other things that the, is a central theme of the film is it's to do with uh, individual versions of events because it's two people in a room one of whom by their profession is meant to be completely uh, objective the other of whom is of indeterminate origin, I think is the best way of describing that character. But at no point does somebody whip out a phone and go, hang on, I'll just Google it. And, <laughs> and but like you say, the, the film exists because it exists in an isolated space. With It is their, their, their two yeah. experiences of the world is all you have. But the science is quite good, I think. I think the science is quite good. I think the science... Um, remarkably holds up. And I think that uh, in, at the end of the film, there's this uh, little video, which is friend, friendship's gift to um, the world and via, via Sullivan. And, um, you know, some of the ideas in that are still pertinent today and I'm seeing it now it feels incredibly prescient. It's way ahead of its time in a really weird way. I mean, there are clunky things like, like uh, Bill's large Apple computer, which is supposed to be state of the art. And, um, the, but on the other hand, there are ideas in there which are still very modern, very current. And that's what I think is, very, is so special about it. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, do you think of it as science fiction? Do you think of it as a science fiction story, either of you? I've, t- I've tended not to, you know. <laughs> I think of it as a true story, really. I, th- I, f- I find it very believable. I think it's sort of, for me, what would be, what would happen if somebody came from outer space and had a chat with a journalist in a war zone? I, d- I just do. I, th- I think that's what I like about it. It's, it's credible. Bill? I, I was listening to a, an old replay this morning of a really four extra, you know, the... Uh, BBC Four Extra Channel, and there was a piece about the. It's called Dames of D-Day. It was about Martha Gellhorn and Lee Miller and these these women who who had a completely fresh and original take to to the D-Day landings. Many of them, including Gellhorn, she she um, smuggled herself aboard, and it was. I kind of thinking that it was slightly like. Um, Tilda was one of that generation who had smuggled himself aboard something and was was speaking much more accurately and much more honestly about about what she saw around her than than the male macho Sullivan battering his typewriter journalist was doing. So there was, you know, I just had a moment that friendship was still alive. You know? I love the conversations about, you know, about not hitting the keyboard and I've always hit the keyboard. That's yeah. what I'm going to do. And then the description of the, of the vacuum, <laughs> the vacuum cleaner. And I mean, I love all that because it's kind of, it's satirical, it's, but it's done. It's great. It's witty. Yeah. It's yeah. witty. Exactly. That's exactly the word. Yeah. So, and, I, and you will have noticed as a writer that my uh, typing is so bad, anybody would look at that for <laughs> five seconds and say, this guy does not type. Well, you're doing, you're doing it with one finger, but you're doing it with alternate one fingers really, really heavily. But, but it was, I got away with it because it was like I was inflicting pain on the machine and here. Yeah. So he didn't, he, um, Peter didn't seem to worry about that. He said, just, just fine, just fine. <laughs> but I, I, I love that idea of, of, of inflicting pain on the machine and the fact that the, the, the machine to her is what she is. And so the idea of, of, of machines having feelings in a way, well, I think it's, that's very prescient. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think a modern audience will make of it? I mean, uh, I I confess I hadn't seen it before. This is the first time I'd seen it. Um, and I was surprised by it, not least because I thought, why haven't I seen this before? Um, I know that it's been sort of fairly hard to get hold of. But um, but also because because of everything that's happened since then, it it does seem weirdly of the moment. And I wonder what what how you think a modern audience will react to it. Well, I'm done for a modern audience to see it because I think they will be surprised by it, how modern it is. I mean, it's, this is a film which is 33 years old or whatever. It's set 20 years before that. And yet it still does have so much to say about now. And I think, I, I, I don't know, I think people might, I, hope, I would hope people would be charmed by its 
character and beauty and the fact that you can make a film so simply that it's uh, that it still it still grabs your attention throughout i i, I don't know I, i'm i'm interested to see what people will write about it don't know i hope the same I, i'm not sure what the kind of exposure it get is it cinema is it having a cinema release or uh, I don't. I don't know. I that. have a disc. I, be, I believe it's primarily a disc release. Is it getting played in the theatre at all? I, I, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I, I know it's a Blu-ray release, and um, yeah. yeah. I, and then also, it was chosen last year as uh, a Cannes classic. So um, I don't know whether they'll be showing it in Cannes this year. Um, it'd be amazing if they do show it because that would be like very special to have it on one of their enormous screens to see to yeah, the, yeah. see this film which was the film was shot the film was shot on 16mm it wasn't shot on obviously digital had been invented so it wasn't shot on tape yeah. either it's a, it's a 16mm blow up to 35 so I, I i don't know i mean i think um actually i should know better but um uh the BFI does work in wonderfully mysterious ways, and they will no doubt bring it to our attention in a big way. The, I think one of the interesting things about it being shot on 16mm is that now 16mm has become a shorthand for grainy, fuzzy. And in fact, it's not. Um, 16mm was just, a, was just a cost-efficient way of shooting very clean images, and there is nothing grainy or fuzzy about the film at all. In fact, on the, you know, the, the Blu-ray, it looks absolutely spanking. And I, I like the fact that technology is now able to give a new piece of life to a film like this, which in its kind of final moments is kind of doing exactly the thing that you're talking about, the final thing about her gift is looking forward to technology anyway. Um, I'd be, I'm very interested to see what people make of it, because as I said, I suspect that many people like me will not have seen it before. And, uh, you know, and I, so I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what people make of it. And part of me kind of thinks the less you know about it in advance, the better. I knew nothing about it other than that it was you, Bill, and you, Rebecca, and Tilda. And that was it. I knew nothing about it before watching it. And I actually think that was the best way to see it. Oh, well, well let's scrap this podcast then, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just stick it in a time capsule if that's okay. Yeah. The, the only the thing about having an audience would be would be of course that wonderful sense of that sharing something like this and and you I, I don't know how you measure that anymore you, you you're living in that all the time Rebecca but um, I don't know how you measure it when when it it, it it's out there in the on the on the streaming or the channels uh, I I would love to sit in a in a cinema audience and see it again and see either people grown beside me or absolutely and i think you know vitold was so when we when we remastered it vitold was so thrilled to to discover because it was shot on film the quality was so high and he could get more out of the film with current technology than he could at the time so actually he was able to grade the film and color the film it so that it's even better than it was when it first was released which i think is a wonderful thing so it is something which has changed as has evolved with technology 
I think that the um, the grading is what really. I mean, the blacks are very black, and the darks are very clear, and that's obviously the thing that you that when you look back at any film that's degraded, that's what you lose. But that has really kind of really held up. It looks. I said it looks really terrific and again because if you know it's a low budget 16 mil production what you don't expect is for it to look crisp and clear and slightly futuristic within the context of uh, of its story i was just i was just going to say um you know the, the the sound and the music is very very beautifully done too the composer was barrington Philong, who Later, around about that same time, did the, did the theme tune for in- Inspector Morse. That was his main fame, claim to fame. But Barrington does a beautiful crossover sort of Middle Eastern alien soundtrack, which I think is, and, and the editor and the sound editor did a fabulous job as well. Robert Hargreaves and Peter Carlton worked on it and uh, everybody went on to do different things. And I, I think the sound really works for me and makes it strong too. Yeah, I think I'm right in remembering that Barrington Phelan's final film was My Feral Heart. Oh, really? Um, which he did a beautiful. Which he, I, I think I'm right in remembering that. I'll check it, but I, I think that's right. But no, he did a beautiful score for that as well. So look, just to sort of bring this to a close, and since we appear to be coming out of lockdown, uh, fingers crossed, and let's see what's happening. How do you both feel about the state of the cinema industry? Do you think we're in good shape? Is the future bright? How are you feeling? Phil, you go first. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm odd enough. My son is and uh, works in the film. He's a programmer for uh, now JW3. He was at the Phoenix for years, Mark. I think yeah. sometimes you you would yeah. bump into him there. And yeah, uh, yeah. I've I've been concerned, like any old dad would, about this. You know, the prospect on a very <laughs> personal level about uh, people going back. But he's finding he's he's setting up the programming at the JW3, and he said there's quite there's 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 real optimism. People that are really feeling that they want to get back in, and the experience seems to be already this week or two that the cinemas are filling up. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I was saying, um, I, I was just so happy to get back into the darkened room a couple of weeks ago and go and see a couple of movies in real cinema time, and that was just so different. I've actually gone off film so much on the small screen. I find it really difficult to concentrate and you just need to put me in a darkened room and it's fine. It's all okay. And so people that I'm meeting outside of the industry are all saying to me, I'm really keen to see films in the cinema. It's not just people in the industry. I can assure you that. So roll on the big screen. And we there aren't any cinema plans for this at the moment that we know of, but you never know. Demand may insist that it goes into a big, darkened room. Well, I think it's great that after all this time, people are, are able to see it, also to see it in such a, you know, a sort of a handsomely presented edition. Um, I, I wish you all the best with it. And I really look forward to seeing uh, what people make of it. Even if for people who, who don't have the benefit of having Rebecca explain the plot at the very, very beginning. Rebecca, I think you should literally do an introduction in which you stand up and go, OK, here's the deal. Um, yeah. Thanks very much, Bill. I have to say, as every time I see you, I have to say this. Thank you for Comfort and Joy, which I have seen every year for the last 25 years of my life. And there's not a year's gone by in which, in which I don't watch that movie. It it did open the Edinburgh Film Festival, remember? And- 1987, it actually was the <laughs> top of the bill. It, it opened it. 
it, it's, yes. a, it's an absolute um, an absolute Christmas staple for me, and uh, and I, I wouldn't want it to be Christmas without it. Anyway, lovely speaking to both of you, and I hope to see you both in the in the flesh when this is all behind us, which hopefully, hopefully it is. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Cheers, Bill. Bye. Nice to see you. My thanks to Bill Patterson and Rebecca O'Brien for talking to me about Friendship's Death, which is available on BFI Blu-ray and DVD and on BFI Player, iTunes and Amazon Prime. Thanks for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, tell your friends. Remember to subscribe. Visit our Patreon channel where there's loads and loads of extra videos. Keep watching the skies. Stay safe. I'll speak to you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.